In the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Amen. We thank God for bringing us together once again on uh, this lost day to um, sing praises to His name, to fellowship together, and to hear the Word of God. The, the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, the preaching of God's Word is the climax of our worship together. Um, this is the, the highest um, you know, um, mark of a healthy church. We are people that when we leave um, this gathering, we must say in our hearts, we have heard God speak to us this morning. Amen. Let me take this time to welcome our visitors. Um, it's a joy to see uh, um, um, Henny's and, and, and Janandra's family. Uh, please feel at home and um, may God bless you. And if there are any also other visitors, please do feel at home. And uh, may the preaching of God's word be a blessing to your souls. Um, we have been going through a series on the means of grace um, titled God's Growth Plan for Believers. And this morning um, will be the conclusion of, of that series. Uh, we are going to look at the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. So, um, actually, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, let me put it like that. So, my point that I want to bring across, since this is a topical series, um, our practice, a natural um, preaching um, practice, is that we preach through books of the Bible. And this has been a topical series. We'll conclude today, and in a few weeks' time, we'll start with the book of uh, the Gospel according to Mark. Um, so my point this morning that I want to make is that the ordinances, talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, confirm and nourish. The ordinances confirm and nourish. Let's take this time and present it to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll continue with God's word, shall we? Uh, dear Heavenly Father, indeed you are God. You are in control. You know us better than we can ever know ourselves. And you know what we need to hear as we draw near to you to hear your word. May our hearts be truly opened to you and to receive your word with joy and to um, um, act according to your word uh, with humility. Bless us, O oh Lord, as we draw near to you this morning that we may hear from you oh god give me clarity of speech and clarity of thought as we hear your word this morning in jesus blessed name we pray amen so as i said that uh, this will be our fifth and final um, sermon in this series um, some of you will remember that it was supposed to be six um, but i um, as as we determined as i determined that the series I just realized that there's a lot that we'll cover, especially in, in, in the Gospel of Mark, that even comes and touches to the series as well. I believe that the series has um, accomplished what it, needs, it needed to accomplish, and may God use it to even, um, you know, shape us, right? Um, we don't just hear the word to gain knowledge, but the word must shape us and shape even how we um, um, act in community as the saints um, that have been saved by grace through faith. 
So today I want to address another um, um, one of these topics, and this is the ordinances of the church, talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let me remind you, if you have uh, read um, our Declaration of Faith, in Article 3 of the Central Baptist uh, Church's uh, Declaration of Faith, um, point R, reads this. It says, the Lord has given us, um, has appointed two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, to be observed as acts of obedience and as perpetual witnesses to the cardinal facts of the Christian faith. Virtually, every word in that short statement is important. Jesus Christ gave many exhortations, commands, and ethical imperatives. Um, these are ethical commands to the church. The, the evangelical Christians consider all of them to be equally true and authoritative. However, two of his commands have been set apart from the others and are considered ordinances due to their single nature and their continual public practices in the church. Now, Jesus' great commission, found in Matthew chapter 28, it, it mandates that in, in making disciples, we are to baptize them. And when he, he, he gave the bread, remember when he gave the bread and the cup to his disciples, in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, he commands them that he says to them, do this in remembrance of me. So he gives two ordinances, baptism in Matthew chapter 28, when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And again, he gives another ordinance of the Lord's Supper. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And we are to do this until he comes. These two ordinances visibly and tangibly express the gospel. They are what Augustine called visible words. That is, they, they speak to us of the wonderful truths of Christ's sacrificial death, our union with him, the, the, the resurrection life that is ours and his glorious return. Yet the ordinances are not only visible, they are also tangible, aren't they? That is, they are experienced physically. We eat and drink and we are washed with water. These are God-given means by which we respond to the gospel personally, as it is said before us, in these visible and tangible ways. We deny, however, that the ordinances are means of salvation. We believe that the Bible teaches salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. That the ordinances are not a means of us becoming saved but these are things that we participate in when we are saved. However, well, when these ordinances are celebrated in genuine faith, we believe that they confirm and nourish the believer. You see, baptism confirms the new believer in the first act of faith, while the Lord's Supper nourishes, that is, that is, it strengthens, edifies, and enhances the spiritual health of the believer in his or her ongoing Christian life. Both serve to separate the believer from the world and to identify those who belong to the body of Christ. 
because of the spiritual benefits that come through their connection to the gospel, the ordinances are to be celebrated. That is, we are to practice them with a spirit of thanksgiving and praise, acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts to attest to the gospel of which the ordinances speak. The, the ordinances are intended to unite us together in Christ, not to separate us. We, we, we see this clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 to 6, which urges us to, to keep to the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then immediately it speaks of one baptism, that we have one Lord, one baptism. We see it also in 1 Corinthians chapter, 12, chapter 11, when you look at verse 17 and to verse 22, this is whenever we are participating in the Lord's Supper, our elder uh, Mr. Nyoni would read from this passage as he leads us in the, in, in the participation of the table of the Lord. And this is where Paul rebukes, remember, he rebukes the Corinthian church for, for the divisive way they were practicing the Lord's Supper in, in this passage. Unfortunately, there is much debate and even bitterness surrounding both the ordinances in the church today. What do they mean? What do they accomplish? How should we practice them? Who should participate? So these are questions that, that, that are asked, and these are questions that are debated, sometimes even debated with bitterness. My goal today is simple. I just want to sort through some of the confusion and explain the ordinances biblically. But I will say up front that I believe there is room for some legitimate disagreement in respect to some of these issues. While the ordinances themselves are what we call essential, non-negotiable truths, there are aspects of these doctrines that are better seen as preferences, some of the aspects, maybe even strong preferences. We, we believe that these fit into Apostle Paul's exhortation to let each other, to let each one be fully convinced in his own mind while not passing judgment on the other, especially when you look at Romans chapter 14. Paul shares that principle in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, and then he shares it again in verse 13. Now, when dealing with preferences, our goal is to persuade, not to coerce, right? Not to force you. It's to persuade you that this seems to be where the Bible is leading. So let's take up baptism first. My question is, what is the meaning and purpose of baptism? That's the first question with regards to, to baptism. And it is important that at the outset we understand the term baptism and, and, and understand how it is used in several different ways in the New Testament. And, and it refers, if you look at the, the testimony of the Bible, it refers to, to very different things. John's baptism, because we, we, we start seeing it with John, don't we? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah. This we see especially in um, Acts 19 verse 4. And Jesus' own baptism by John was not a baptism of repentance. Because Jesus had nothing to repent of. Rather, it was a means of identifying with his people. 
In fact, I saw, I saw this question um, or online, someone just uh, trying to be uh, smart and says, um, as I read through the Bible, that uh, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And he, he says, there's music playing in the background. Then what was Jesus' baptism for? Did Jesus need to repent? Now, 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 now when you look at the Bible, and remember John didn't want to baptize Jesus. And Jesus had to explain to John what that meant. It didn't mean that the Messiah was sinful and he needed to, to repent. It, it meant that it is the thing that he came to do. He came to identify with his people. The term baptism is also used to refer to Jesus' death on the cross. Um, he speaks about it as the baptism of fire. Um, it refers again to Israel's identification with Moses in the Exodus. Remember when they were passing through the Red Sea? And it refers also to the final judgment. And all of which, these uh, refers are clearly metaphorical they, 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 as they use the, the term. And of course, it is used of Jesus' baptism of believers with the Holy Spirit as well. But, but this morning, we are concerned principally with Christian baptism, that is water baptism, that the ordinance the church is commanded to observe in the Great Commission. Again, when I talk about the Great Commission, please remember Matthew 18, go and make disciples of all nations. A baptism signifies our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And not only union with Christ, but also the entire trinity. As, as baptism is to be done in the name of what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Someone jokingly said that Baptists say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. But it's actually the, the Holy Spirit. The fact that baptism is intimately connected with water also pictures purification for the defilement of the guilt of sin. It is a testimony to the salvation of the believing participant, an encouragement to those believers who observe it. And when accompanied by a verbal profession of faith, it is a powerful witness to the unbeliever. The bottom line is that the New Testament, in the New Testament, it was the normal initiatory right into the Christian faith. The, the, the means that Christ appointed for publicly proclaiming one's identification with him and his body, the church. And that's one of the, one of the things that you were saying to the world. Imagine yourself in Rome, right? Rome under, under the emperorship of, of Nero. One of the, the, the things that, that um, was kind of like a confession of faith uh, for the Romans was um, Nero Curios, right? That Nero is Lord. Now, when you come to Christ and identify with Christ and publicly identify with him by proclaiming your faith and demonstrating that through baptism, you were saying Jesus is Lord and not Nero. That's why when you read history, I keep saying, if you're a history buff and you read history, especially first century um, you know, history uh, in terms of the, the Christian church, you will realize how much the believers were persecuted. And the reason they were persecuted is because these Roman emperors were declaring themselves 
to be in the place of God. And so when Christians became Christians, they were denying that fact. They were paying allegiance to a different Lord. A Lord of the universe, the supreme one who holds the, 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 the world by the power of his word. They were saying Jesus alone is Lord and not Caesar. Jesus alone is in control of the life of the believer. Lord. Right? I mean, just think about it. Even today, when you are a landlord, the tenant doesn't give you the terms and conditions of living there. Right? You set the terms and conditions for the tenant. The tenant doesn't tell you, no, I'll pay any day I want. I'll pay on the 5th this month. Next week, I'll pay on the 15th. Next week, I'll pay on the... Uh, next month, I'll pay on the, 5th, the 25th. That's not going to work, is it? You, you, you must obey the rules of the tenant. The, 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 I mean, the landlord. Right? In the same way, when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we're saying my life is no longer under my control. It is under the control of Jesus. He, he, he gives the matching orders. He gives the matching orders. Now here's another question. Since we, we, we answered the question of um, what is uh, the meaning and purpose of baptism, the other question is how important is baptism, right? How important is it? It is, when you read the Bible, it is indisputable that Jesus Christ was baptized, especially when you look at Mark chapter 3, right? That he approved of it. And that he commanded it in Matthew chapter 28. And that the early church universally practiced it. Well, when Peter preached his first sermon right after the Holy Spirit came and indwelt believers and people say, these people are crazy, they are drunk. And Peter stood up and preached the sermon and, 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 and people, the Bible says, they were cut to the, to the heart. They were convicted of their sins and they said, men of Israel, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. And what? Be baptized. Identify with Christ. Amen. What? One looks in vain in the Bible for an unbaptized believer in the New Testament. Other than the thief on the cross, of course, who had no opportunity to be baptized. But when you look at the, 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 the New Testament testimony with regards to the normal practice of the church, when one becomes a believer, what follows is baptism. So, so baptism's importance is also evident from the fact that virtually every branch of Christianity observes this ordinance. Of course, there are others like uh, the, the Quakers, the Salvation Army, the ultra-dispensationalists, and, and, and a few minor sects who don't uh, practice baptism. Though, of course, not all, again, practice it in the same way or attach the same meaning to it, and we will explain that as we continue. Dr. Richard Averbeck, uh, he's a professor of New Testament, uh, of Old Testament theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He writes this, he says, 
it would not occur to the early church, to the early Christians that there could be a Christian in the local church who had not been baptized. That the, the close proximity, time-wise, between trusting in Christ and being baptized is significant. It implies that they could not conceive of a true Christian who was not willing to express his commitment to the Lord. That was not one of the options given to the person being baptized, being evangelized. He either trusted in Christ and was baptized, knowing the implications in terms of commitment and lifestyle, or he rejected the truth. And here's why, brothers and sisters, this was important. When you declare that Jesus is Lord and you are identifying with him, as I said, you essentially are saying that Caesar is not Lord. You're putting a giant um, you know, target on your back. The, when you became a Christian in, in the first, first century Palestine, in the Greco-Roman world as well, your life expectancy dropped by 50%. Pregnant women were thrown in the lions, ripped them apart. Men were just, you know, made sport and, 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 and made to fight gladiators. Imagine, you've never fought in your life. You've never fought in your life. You're thrown with a, a gladiator in the arena. And they make a sport of you. Not because you committed any crime, but because you paid allegiance to Christ. So baptism was, I mean, salvation um, immediately was followed by baptism because life expectancy was short. And so we also need to follow the, the, the same thing, not only because life expected, our life expectancy is not short, but we need to obey the Lord, don't we? Now, here's another question that I have on rega- with regards to baptism. Who are the proper subjects of baptism? Who are the proper subjects of baptism? In other words, who should be baptized? When you look at the New Testament, it teaches that those who give a credible profession of faith should be baptized, as seen in multiple passages in the New Testament. For example, um, Acts chapter 2, verse 41 it says that after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, um, those who accepted his message, in verse 41 of chapter 2, Acts, those who accepted his message were baptized. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 12 to 13, we read that they, 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 they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized. And in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. So what do we see as a sequence? We see belief first, then baptism. It is a clear pattern in the New Testament, isn't, isn't it? And almost no, no one argues with the fact that adults con, con, adult converts should be baptized. The real divide in the church is over whether infants should be baptized. But the fact that the fact is, infant baptism is practiced by a bulk of Christendom. Right? Think about the Roman Catholics, all, all branches of the Orthodox um, Church, um, especially Eastern Orthodox um, Church, the Anglicans, virtually all mainline Protestant denominations, and even many evangelicals. 
Why is that the case? It is not because there are any clear biblical examples of infant baptism. And in fact, there, there aren't any examples. But rather, for a variety of theological reasons, Roman Catholicism, for example, teaches that baptism removes original sin and results in salvation. That is, we, we call um, that doctrine baptismal regeneration. Uh, the official doctrine teaches that salvation is inherent in the sacrament itself, right? even apart from faith. So naturally, Catholic parents want to have their infants baptized as soon as possible. Immediately, when they are born, within eight days probably, they, they want them to be baptized. Lutherans, on the other hand, teach that baptism imparts saving grace to the infant. Right? So there's an impartation of saving grace. But they differ with, um, from Catholicism in that they, they believe faith is necessary. Presumably, they're the faith of the parents at the time of baptism. So it's not the faith of the, the child who's unable to express faith at that particular moment, but the faith of the parents. And that faith must eventually be confirmed later on by the parents. That's the importance, the, the, the importance they place on catechism classes and confirmation. It plays the, life, it, it, the, the confirmation that it plays in the life of a young Lutheran. While we would reject the theological basis of infant baptism as practiced by Catholics and, and Lutherans, namely that, the, that, that saving grace is imparted to, to these infants, we must, also, we must I, I think, give more careful consideration to the theology behind infant baptism practiced by Reformed and, and Presbyterian churches. Right? Presbyterian churches view infant baptism as an initiation into the covenant community or the covenant family. Just as um, children are viewed as part of a nuclear family from the time of birth, long before they understand their position in it, so spiritually speaking, the children of believing parents should be viewed as part of the believing family, the church, according to this view. And thus, they should be baptized. Presbyterian theology, often called covenant theology, draws a strong parallel between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism. Uh, just as infants, uh, at least the males, were, were circumcised in the Old Testament to signify membership in the, new, in, 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 in the covenant community of, of Israel, so infants today, according to the Presbyterian theology, should be baptized, signifying their membership into the covenant community of the church. You see, uh, Presbyterians do not claim baptismal regeneration as Roman Catholics and Lutherans do, uh, for just as circumcision in the Old Testament did not guarantee that a child would be part of or remain part of the true community, so also there is no guarantee that a baptized infant will continue in faithfulness to, to Christ. So it is critical that for, for the church to disciple and teach these children for them to eventually make the faith demonstrated by their parents and bringing them to, their, um, to be baptized their own. They need to be, make this faith their own. Now, let me talk about um, the Baptist position. Now, Baptist churches practice believers' baptism only. Right? And the, the primary reason for uh, the vast majority practices only believers' baptism is that faith is almost always as explicitly connected with baptism in the New Testament. So there's faith, then there's baptism. That is what you see in the Bible. No infant can rationally be thought of as expressing his or her own faith through baptism. At best, the faith of parents is being expressed. And we know that God does not have grandchildren, does he? 
God has children. A 99-year-old believer, a 10-year-old believer are children of God. So the question that has always come to my mind is that if the Lord expected Christian parents to have their infants baptized, would he not have given at least one explicit example of infant baptism in the scriptures? And and true, there are three examples of of household baptism in the New Testament, isn't it? In in, in Acts chapter 16 verse 15, in Acts chapter 16 verse 33, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 16. We see household baptism. But if we take this to its logical conclusions, we should say if one member of the church becomes saved and they are baptized, even their unbelieving spouse, because they are part of the household, right, should be baptized. Does that make sense biblically? It doesn't, right? Because baptism is a um, it's an outward testimony of an inward reality. In these examples, it is certain that infants were present, right? But in two of, of the three, the, 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 in none of them, actually, sorry, in none of them, we, we, we don't see infants uh, present here. And in two or three of the faith of the household members um, is, is expressly mentioned. That the Philippian jailer, his, his faith is expressly mentioned, and we assume that his family also heard the gospel. And we certainly agree that infants of Christians' parents are set apart according to the scriptures by God unto God. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, um, the Bible calls them holy. But we express that belief through infant um, dedication and not baptism. And we, we, we do not encourage baptism until the child can fully understand what baptism signifies and can personally and credibly profess faith in Christ. What is that age? What is that age when the child can be baptized? It's undoubtedly different for different children, isn't it? I think baptism, and, and this is a big I think, right? I think baptism should be at least, um, uh, when children are baptized, should at least be 10 years old before being baptized. I'll give you the rationale behind that. We are not doubting that a child can truly trust in Christ prior to that age. But, but this decision is made on, on, our belie- on our belief that there are two principles, okay? two, two principal actors in, in baptism. Right? The individual and the church. No one baptizes himself or herself. Baptism requires a second actor, and that is the local church. The individual makes a public profession of faith. The church hears that profession, affirms it, and then publicly recognizes one, the one baptized as a Christian brother or sister. Now, if the church is to confirm or affirm the believer through baptism, some level of confidence is needed that the profession of faith is genuine. And I believe it is, it is difficult to have such confidence for, for young children younger than 10. And the reason being the, the reason for that is that young children naturally believe that they are, what their parents believe and want to do what pleases their parents oftentimes. And that is certainly a good thing, isn't it? We should be proud when our children want to follow our examples, but it is not the same thing as giving a genuine personal profession of, of faith. 
Such a, a, an age policy also helps eliminate the competition that can easily be generated among very young children to get baptized because so-and-so did it, right? The proverbial, the, the proverbial if your friends jump over the cliff, will you, will you also follow them kind of thing. I, I, I personally believe the age of 12 or 13 is the best time for baptism. Uh, that is the, the age when Jewish children, remember, Jewish children become a son of the Lord. This is a bar mitzvah or a daughter of the Lord, a bat mitzvah. So usually uh, I think this would be the case. But again, when a child insists and says, I am saved and, 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 and gives a credible profession of faith, even if they are 10, they should be baptized. Now, the last question on baptism, and we'll go to the Lord's Supper. What is the proper mode of baptism? What is the proper mode of baptism? Baptism has historically been practiced in three primary ways. Immersion, sprinkling, or pouring. Obviously, it is inappropriate to immerse an infant. So just as most of Christendom baptizes infants, so most of the Christendom uh, practices uh, sprinkling. So Baptists and many other evangelicals practice immersion. While the New Testament makes no prescriptive statement about the mode of, of, of baptism, the descriptive evidence is decidedly on the side of immersion. The, the primary meaning, just even look at the, the grammar of it, the primary meaning of the Greek word translated baptized means to dip or to immerse. In fact, this word was not originally a Christian word. It was borrowed from the from um, um, the, the text, I mean, what do you call the, the, the cloth industry? And, and when they dye the, the cloth, they would immerse it in dye and bring it out another color, right? So, so Christians borrowed this word baptized to demonstrate that a believer is saying, I died with Christ and I'm raising again to new life. So the word was used to mean to dip or to immerse. As I said, it was not originally a Christian word. It was a, it's a borrowed word. So immersion is also the most natural understanding of the uh, prepositions used in, um, when, when it comes to baptism. Like going into the water or coming out of the water. For example, when you look at Mark chapter 1 verse 10 and Acts chapter 8 verse um, 38 and 39, we, we have verses that tell us about people um, going into the water or coming out of the water. Then we have verses like John chapter 3 verse uh, 23 where we are told that John the, bapti that the Baptist was baptizing at Ainon near Salim. And this is why. It says because water was plentiful there. There was plentiful water there. That statement would be unnecessary and irrelevant if he wasn't immersing his disciples. Uh, perhaps more importantly, immersion provides clear, the clearest picture of one's spiritual identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Right? Christ was not sprinkled with dust um, or, 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 or soil. He was buried. When you look at Romans chapter 6, verse 4, it expresses it this way. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we see that it was by immersion.
Now, having argued for, argued for immersion, however, it seems to me that the efficacy of baptism should not depend upon the quantity of the water used. Even, you know, those who believe in immersion will generally make exceptions for those who are too old and too frail to be immersed and will baptize by pouring um, the water on them in such cases. These are special cases. Now, I want to conclude the topic of baptism by focusing not on the controversy surrounding it, but on the enormous blessing it can be to the believing church. Some of the testimonies we, we have um, over the years, especially from new converts, have been incredibly meaningful and encouraging to the body of Christ. But it, it is also a huge blessing to observe parents publicly dedicating their children as well who then through the, the faithfulness of those parents in the church come to the point of personally accepting Christ as Savior and Lord and choose to be baptized. Now let us turn our attention to the Lord's Supper and I'll be brief here. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Remember Jesus took the Passover meal that had been practiced by the Jewish people for 1,400 years, since, that is ever since the Exodus, and gave it new significance. Like, like the, the Passover lamb, whose death substituted for the death of the firstborn of Israel, Jesus offered himself as a substitute for his people. And just as Moses declared um, of, of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, saying, this is a day you are to commemorate and for the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a perpetual memorial. By perpetual, I mean um, something that is continuous and forever, um, especially um, uh, in this world. And as a celebration of his body, which was broken, and, and of his blood, which was poured out for the sins of, of believers. Now, the question is, what is the meaning and purpose of the Lord's Supper? Once again, there are four different views of the significance of the Lord's Supper, and they are common in Christendom. The Roman Catholic view is called, I don't like these big words, um, it's called transubstantiation, right? Um, it teaches that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ through a miracle that is performed at the moment the priest repeats, this is my body. Uh, during the celebration of the Mass, right? We, we believe that this is a hyper-literal interpretation of Jesus' words, and that what he meant was actually, this represents my body. And after all, at the Lord's Supper, as he was holding the bread, it was clearly distinct from his body, wasn't it? And when he said that the cup was the new covenant, he, he certainly meant that it represents the new covenant, not that the cup itself was the new covenant. The Lutheran view, on the other hand, is called consubstantiation. These big words today. It teaches that the physical body of Christ is in, with, and under the bread and the wine. The elements do not become the, the body of Christ, and his physical body is nevertheless really present. If this sounds rather mystical, it is. In fact, Martin Luther appealed to a, 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 a questionable doctrine of the ubiquity of, of Christ's human nature to explain this, this doctrine of, of consubstantiation. But nowhere does the Bible teach that Jesus is physically present in the Lord's Supper. Then there's two other views. 
the view of the Reformed churches and including the Presbyterians, they, they, they view that the, the spiritual, they, 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 their view is called spiritual presence view. The essence of this view is that while the bread and, and, and wine only symbolize the body and blood of Christ, he is spiritually present in a special way when the Lord's Supper is received by faith and in, an, in a worthy manner. Baptists, on the other hand, believe generally, um, they, they hold that um, to what we call memorial view, right? They see the Lord's Supper as an important reminder of the death of Christ with a view to encouraging self-examination and repentance. I personally believe that both the spiritual presence view and the memorial view are true. That the Lord's Supper is a memorial cannot be denied, can it? For it is obvious when you look at, uh, uh, um, you know, Scripture, First Corinthians chapter 11, do this in remembrance of me. However, it seems to be more than a mere memorial in light of the strong warnings attached to First Corinthians 11. And, and the fact that it is referred to as an active participation in the body and the blood of Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You see that? So there's a, 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 a sense in which we experience the blessing of Christ and the sense in which we are remembering him. Now the question is, how important is the Lord's Supper? You will remember that um, during, um, when we opened after lockdown, we couldn't participate. We were thinking as, as the leaders of the church, how do we uh, implement? Because remember that uh, we had um, stewards bringing the Lord's Supper to you. And we had to think about ways as to how do we participate because we see it as important. And now, the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus' followers are to continue sharing in the Lord's table until he comes. The, the, the early church practiced it frequently, and in some cases daily. And with baptism, it is, um, as with baptism, it is practiced virtually by every branch of Christendom, except again, the Quakers, the Salvation Army, the ultra-dispensationalists, and a few minor sects. Though, of course, not all understand it the same way or practice it the same, in the same manner. Now, the, the, another question, who are the proper participants in the Lord's Supper? Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Clearly, communion is designed for believers only, isn't it? But it is for all believers. Uh, should communion be just for the members of the church or open to all believers, even visitors? You will remember, um, if you are here during um, um, you know, communion, that... Um, uh, Elder Nyoni announces that at CBC we practice what we call open communion. Right? The, the, the rationale behind open communion is that the Lord's Supper belongs to the universal church, not to the local church, though, like baptism, it's properly administered through the local church. And one need not belong to, the, to our church or to any Baptist church to receive the Lord's Supper here, but one should certainly be a member of the body of Christ and again not be under discipline by a believing local church. Obviously, we cannot judge the spiritual status of every individual who comes to a service where communion is served. Right? All, all, all we can really do is, is state our expectation and leave the results with God. Those results, by the way, can be rather very severe when individuals receive the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. 
that if you look at First uh, Corinthians 11 again, verse 27 to verse 30. I want to conclude this examination of the Lost Supper as I did the previous discussion of, of, of baptism by focusing not on the controversies, but on the enormous blessing this ordinance is to the believing church. And unfortunately, in some churches, the, the Lost Supper has become little more than a ritual with, with both leaders and congregation going through the motions and with little thought to its significance. But when believers see its importance and concentrate on its meaning and purpose, and truly focus their attention on the incredible sacrifice Christ made on our, for our eternal salvation, we can and should be overwhelmed by the thought that God himself invites us to dine with him. Brothers and sisters, if these ordinances, these two ordinances of the church are not among the highlights of our worship experience, something is wrong. Either we pastors are not giving sufficient time and attention to them, or the congregation is not coming prepared and expectant. Each of us is responsible not only to participate in these blessed practices with which the Lord himself ordained, but to participate in faith and in expectation of all God wants to do for us through them. Amen? Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that for us to, to declare our faith, to demonstrate that the fact that Christ has reached out to us, that we demonstrate that through baptism. And Lord, may we not forsake it. We thank you for the Lord's Supper in which we can daily be reminded as often as we take it. May you be glorified in our lives as a church, O oh God, as we navigate our way through this life, waiting for your coming. Be pleased, O oh Lord, to bless our hearts. Be pleased to grow us in the faith. Even as we looked at these several sermons, be pleased, O oh God, to grow us. Because indeed, these are your plans for you to grow us as believers. May your name be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.